This is the Mind Body Health Show. Dr. Marvin Trotter, host hey, of hi, the Mind um, Body uh, Health Show. Sorry, <clears throat> it's going to be a little bit of an unusual show today. Dr. Katsura, the orthopedic surgeon in Willits, got called to surgery, so he was not able to do the show today. We're going to have to reschedule him. But fortunately, uh, Dr. Evans has agreed to do the show, and we're going to talk about all kinds of different things. Good morning, Dr. Evans. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks you. Thank you for um, <clears throat> agreeing to be on. Um, you know, forty-five. Um, so, Dr. Evans and I have known each other since before I came to Ukiah. We both worked in Amigos de las Americas, a mass vaccination program that we did when we were 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, sort of thing in Latin America. Um, and I'll let Dr. Evans, uh, he's gone to Kenya. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the ER together. He's in Petaluma now. Um, um, and the, one of the principal things we'd like to talk about is this work he's done in Kenya. But I, what I'd like to do is to talk about how Dr. Evans and I both got on um, this track of, of doing different things in the world. But I'll first um, not bore you with that and uh, hear about Kenya, which is a fascinating uh, situation. So I initially went to Kenya in 1988, uh, worked to start a, a small clinic there. The clinic had already been built, and uh, I was the first physician to get there. It um, was on a small little rural village on Lake Victoria, um, about 14 hours from Nairobi, um, most of it over a, a poor dirt road. And way back in the middle of nowhere, we had no uh, power of any kind. There were no motors that you could hear other than our Land Rover that got us there. There was no electricity, no running water. And we had a clinic that we um, had set up some solar on. And that was the only form of electricity that we had that ran our refrigerator and ran the lights in the clinic. And um, we saw probably 100 patients a day. Um, we would do out uh, visits to neighboring villages and do vaccination campaigns. When we first got there, there was polio, there was tetanus, um, lots of measles, and we wiped those diseases out with vaccinations. And, you know, <clears throat> truly, particularly during the pandemic, when you think about everything that's going on, <clears throat> vaccinations are what really made the difference for or that that clinic at that time. Fast forward uh, 30 years, I went back there two years ago on a fundraising trip to raise money for the clinic and for the orphanage. And the the clinic is is twice the size. They've actually opened a second uh, um, site about 20 miles away, closer to the Tanzania border. And they have an orphanage. They have all kinds of community projects that include um, schools and uh, cooperatives for women, uh, education for uh, all the orphans that were brought on the AIDS pandemic. Hang on a second. Clearly, he's got an important patient there, Dr. Marvin Trotter. Yes, um, he is at home. Um, the, Sorry about that. That's right. 
So, so um, fast forward 30 years, when I went back, you know, you have a, a <clears throat> bustling economy in this little fishing village. Um, there are numerous businesses. Um, people have cars. People have motorbikes. Um, there's a cell tower uh, just outside of town, and everybody has cell phones. But probably the most remarkable thing is what it did for education. Um, there, when I was there initially, there was just one school, and very few people got to sixth grade. Uh, it was a uh, <clears throat> dirt-floored school with wooden desks. Uh, there were about 30 pupils in the, in the class. There was one teacher. And um, fast forward 30 years, there's probably two dozen schools, some as big as 300 uh, students. And one of the schools actually tested uh, 10th in the country of Kenya. And they have students wanting to go there from three different countries. The remarkable thing I think that people should realize is how you know, there was nothing there, and there, 30 years later, there's a bustling community. But the point of the matter that Dr. Evans and I wanted to make and um, part of the show and have people discuss, what my daughter, the psychologist, talks about is community and how important it is for everybody to participate in the community for the well-being of everybody. Um, and I'll give you an example of, you know, what Margaret Mead said, don't ever underestimate what a determined group of small people will do because that's what everything comes from. And Aline Brown and a lot of us did the rec center because of that. It took us 17 years, but um, we have a $9 million rec center in Ukiah for the Boys and Girls Club in the community. And it was just a bunch of determined people wanting to change things. So... So, I, you know, I think when you're talking about community, to make projects uh, successful, it, it really has to do with committed leadership and leadership that those in the community who are uh, looking up to you trust. And I think in the community where, where I worked in Kenya, um, there was great trust in the leadership that we established with the locals. And it was very heartening to see when we got back there that the leader that we had installed in 1990 was still there. In fact, <clears throat> he was the one that built the school that uh, tested 10th in the nation. And so Mariko uh, is probably in his late 50s now. He was a 25-year-old carpenter when we um, installed him as the leader of the project. And, you know, he, we installed him because he was one that everyone looked up to. And um, in the area, there's always a problem with nepotism. And I asked him when he told me about how successful his school was, uh, how many of his family members were working at the school? And he employed about 30 people at the school. And he just smiled at me and shook his head and said, not one. <laughs> Which was quite unusual. Very unusual, because usually when, when you would start a venture like that, you'd hire your whole family to do it. But, you know, he said, you know, we, we chose people based on their skills, 
And he said, my family members weren't teachers. You know, I grew up as a carpenter. And um, so I think it's the same. It's the same in any community. If you get the trusted leader to lead the project, uh, you can be very, very successful. The one, the one. Uh, I, I think everybody in Cobb, in particular, would like to hear about your trip to raise money last year, and tell them about the name of the organization and if they want to go do this. This is the most unusual fundraising event you've ever heard of, Cobb. <clears throat> okay. So, so the fundraiser is a, a a walk across the Rift Valley back to Lake Victoria. So. Um, I did this two years ago, and I'm doing it again in August. Um, they have a website called uh, lalamba.org, L-A-L-L-M-B-A.org. And um, you can see the, the, uh, the walk is called Kambayanam Mimi, which means walk with me in Swahili. And we literally walk about 15 to 20 miles a day for 10 days uh, across the Maasai Mara, uh, through Luo land, and then out to Lake Victoria. And it's a glorious walk through probably one of the most pristine game reserves in the world. And you're walking with uh, Maasai warriors and Zambudu warriors and uh, the Luo people, to guard you, there, nobody has guns. Um, we had uh, just about every animal you can think of in our camp. One night we had elephants, one night we had lions. And um, there's somebody on guard uh, and he has a whip and he scares away the animals with the whip. One night we camped in a den of hyenas by mistake. There were 70 hyenas around the region and as it got dark, they kind of came in marauding around the camp, stole some of our kitchen equipment. Poor guards were up all night beating back hyenas. One guy told the story of, of hitting the hyena over the head with his log from the fire. I mean, it was crazy. But um, it's really fun. Had a great time. So, Cobb, the thing that Charlie said that bothered me was he said, um, you know, you hear lions roar. That's okay. You can hear them roar. But when you hear them inhale, you know you ought to be anxious. <laughs> wow. So I'm curious, as you paint this picture, what was the weather like? What's the climate like there? So we're right next to the equator. So it's uh, light 12 hours a day. You know, the sun comes up about quarter of seven. Sun goes down about quarter of seven. And... Uh, it's very, very moderate. The lowest it got was probably 60, and the highest temperature was probably in the high 80s. Most of the time, it was in the mid-70s to low 80s, so uh, it was very pleasant for walking. You had to drink a lot of water uh, walking those distances. We had camels to carry all of our gear. And I don't know how familiar you are with camels, but they're, they're really quite interesting animals. My camel, <clears throat> I became quite attached to, his name was Paleon. And I would lead him, and when we stopped, he, he stood about 11 feet high. And when we stopped, he would put his big muzzle down. And, of course, I hadn't been shaving the whole time. He would scratch his muzzle across my beard. It's really uh, 
quite a, a fun little animal. But it, when you see us coming, you know, most of the people there have never seen camels before because camels aren't native to that part of Kenya. Um, mm-hmm. They come from uh, over uh, near the uh, desert in Sudan and, and over in Ethiopia. And particular camels we had were a mix with a Pakistani camel, and so they were quite a bit bigger. Um, and if you can imagine seeing a, a caravan of 10 white people with five uh, warriors leading them with their whips and 20 camels coming along, um, it was quite an imposing sight. And, you know, it was fun as we'd come into the villages, you know, the schools would just empty out and you, you'd be greeted with a thousand kids in all different colored school uniforms, uh, curious as to what you were doing and where you were going and why you were doing it. And it, it was quite an experience. What's the main language or languages out there? So in Kenya, the, the national language is, is um, Swahili. And where we were, when we were in the Land, they speak Maasai. Um, when we were in Luo land, they speak Luo. And, um, you know, I, I lived in Luo land for two years, so it was fun. My Luo actually came back, and I could communicate with the people. Thanks. And also, when you were talking about this uh, walk being a fundraiser, what was the mechanism for that? Where are the funds coming from exactly? So it's, it's people who... Uh, sponsored me on the walk and Mm -hmm. if you go onto the website you you can see a uh there's a detailed explanation of what the funds will go to um the nice thing about the lamba it's been around since the early 60s um and only about five or eight percent of the funds go to administration of the programs and all the rest actually goes to the people who get the benefits from the program so Last year's walk mainly went to the orphanage and to the medical center at Matoso. And this year's walk is going to be sponsoring a uh, children's home, another orphanage in uh, Chiri, Ethiopia. I want to I say it's L-A-L-M-B-A. L-A-L-M-B-A is the organization. Um, I think it would be interesting also to discuss HIV disease uh, back then. Yes, so, you know, 1988 um, was uh, a time when HIV disease uh, was just beginning to be understood. When I went to Kenya, um, I had gone to medical school at UCSF and had been on the Cancer Research Institute when the first cases of HIV were disclosed and papers came out. That was 1981. And so I, I had been kind of at the epicenter of the epidemic uh, in the United States and saw a lot of HIV. When I went to Kenya, in my first week out in the country, I realized that I was seeing a lot of HIV and there was no uh, national program for HIV uh, prevention at that time. They were aware that it was there and, you know, they were promoting use of condoms and that sort of thing. Um, but there was no testing available, and there was no national program. It was convenient in that the Minister of Health happened to be Luo, and his home 
was about 10 miles from our clinic. And he said, anytime you need anything, you just come to Nairobi and you can see me and I will do what I can do to help you. So first month I was there, I went to Nairobi and I sat down and had a little discussion with him. He was very anxious about it because he didn't want to disclose that HIV was a big problem because of the fact that it could detour uh, tourism. He said, but we will, we will do something. And within months, he started the, the uh, AIDS prevention program that still runs to this day. And so HIV in, in our area was just devastating. Um, as we predicted, it, it orphaned many, many uh, children. And <clears throat> when I was there two years ago, the orphanage had uh, 55 kids, but in addition to the 55 kids, it supported another uh, 1,100 kids who have been placed into homes within the, the villages. So the orphanage was really supporting almost uh, uh, 1,150 kids with some sort of donation for food, clothing, education, that sort of thing. So I'm curious, Dr. Evans, um, most of the, the doctors and staff at the clinic at, at the uh, orphanage, that, that's all local community members? So, yes, it is. So the orphanage is entirely run by uh, the local people, and they receive the funds uh, to pay them through the um, Lamba organization. The clinic now, uh, when I was there in, in um, 2019, did not have any expatriate staff. They usually will have one or two. Um, but, you know, they've made remarkable connections with uh, other, other um, teaching institutions. And because they now have Internet, they actually have all their HIV patients seen through the clinic clinic at the University of Maryland so they get their lab work done in Kenya and they come in for their visit uh, they can pull up their lab work they can be seen by somebody in Maryland who will prescribe their antiretrovirals and uh, most, most of the antiretrovirals are uh, received uh, free that was one of the programs that uh, uh, Bush, President Bush put into uh, effect back in, uh, when was that? That was uh, probably 2010 or 2000. And uh, so they have a good stash of retrovirals and, you know, people are living with HIV out in the middle of nowhere where, you know, if you had told me that was going to happen, I would say, impossible. Mm -hmm. But it's happening. And What's the communication system like out there? You're talking about the internet at the clinic. Is is there widespread internet access in that part of the? So there is internet access. So there's a there's a cell tower in the community now, and you know it's amazing. Um, many many people have cell phones. You know the, the paradox when when we're walking with the Maasai warriors. You know, they, they have their spears and they have a, a machete. But in addition to that, they have a little leather pouch that they keep their cell phone on their waist. So, you know, it's, it, it's fascinating. 
when we were walking, you know, we're quite the spectacle with all the camels. You know, normally the the um, tourists, which which I consider this to be, the tourists are the ones taking pictures of the local people. But in this case, the local people were taking pictures of us with their cell phones. <laughs> Got it. Uh, wow. So how is the picture? How, how long ago were you there recently? Two years. It, um, two I, years ago, I was just there for, for uh, two weeks. But um, when I, I worked there in 1988, there was, I was there for two years. For two years. Wow. Um, I'm thinking here right now, like how current are you on the situation over there? How have they been handling, uh, pandemic circumstances? So when this all came out, um, there's a medical director for the clinic back here and, um, they had access to all the latest data as to what to do with masking and, and um, hand washing. And I've got to say that the people in the village of Matoso are much better about washing their hands than we are. Um, that was something that was practiced and taught. And I think one of the things that makes a huge difference in just public health in general and we would have a ritual every time we had a meal we would all because there was a shortage of water we would all wash our hands together and pour from a a um, clay pot to wash each other's hands and you know it happened every meal uh every day and so you know their their basic hygiene um is very good um they've fared through the pandemic really really well there haven't been any deaths out in the area where where uh the clinic is they've had some spotted cases but because they live rurally uh and because they understand uh pandemics they've isolated you know they've gone through um when i was there we had a cholera epidemic we had a meningitis epidemic and so you know epidemics pandemics aren't new to them and they've fared very, very well uh, compared to, say, the United States. And it's interesting, one of the things that they've been looking at, there's been lots of theories as to why Africa has done so well. One was that they're, they're exposed to far more diseases and they have uh, much uh, stronger immune systems. But the other is related to uh, your uh, weight, and their BMIs are, by and large, good um, versus you take a, a developed country like the United States and you have 30 or 40 percent of people who are considered obese. So um, they've done very well with the pandemic to date. Oh, wait, I, I want to walk back just a minute there because that's something I'm unfamiliar with and maybe either you or Dr. Marvin can answer this, but you're talking about the BMI, body mass index, uh, weight, obesity, or linked with coronavirus? That's yes. something I, I'm not familiar with. Maybe you could expand on that. Marvin, you want to take that? You want me to? You go ahead. I think you've, you're seeing more of it than I yeah. am. So 
So one of the things we're seeing with coronavirus is those who are overweight are actually much more likely to have high blood sugar or truly be diabetic. And those uh, individuals don't do nearly as well when they develop the virus. They're much more likely to go into the respiratory failure. We had, we, Cobb, we had, um, I guess it's been three or four months now, we had four people on ventilators in the ICU at Ukiah Valley Medical Center. Um, all four of them were uh, obese diabetics. They ranged from age 35 to 72, but the, the obesity and diabetes is a huge risk factor. Got it. So, everybody, if you just tuned in, uh, this is the Mind Body Health Show with our host, Dr. Marvin Trotter. And our guest today is uh, Dr. Evans. And I missed your, your title here locally at the beginning. Can you reintroduce yourself again, Dr. Evans? So, Dr. Charlie Evans, I'm an ER physician down at Petaluma, and I also work at uh, Healdsburg. I worked at uh, Adventist Health Ukiah for about 28 years. Okay, got it. So you're an ER doc in Petaluma and Healdsburg, and Marvin, of course, ER doc locally here at Adventist Health, and you put in 25 years at Adventist Health, um, and we've been talking about... Yeah, 28. Uh, 28, sorry. <laughs> and we've been spending uh, the early part of the show hearing about uh, the project you're part of in Kenya. Uh, fascinating. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I'm wondering if y'all are open to us opening up the phone lines to general questions for you both. Of course. Yeah. Okay, sure. so the number to call in here if you have a question for either of our guests, uh, current ER docs on the 101 corridor uh, is 707-895-2448. That's 707-895-2448. And... Um, I guess, yeah, just to to bring it here to the, the area right now, um, can you give us an update on what things have been like in both of your ERs that you've been working at? So um, we still see uh, coronavirus. We're not seeing nearly as much as we uh, did, say, around Thanksgiving and Christmas, the numbers are down. The number of hospitalized patients are down. There's still hospitalized patients. Um, but we're still seeing the virus um, and still admitting people who have, uh, have developed the respiratory failure. So the virus is still out there and not a time to let your guard down. Um, as things open up, I, I uh, if People go out, I hope they still are very, very careful with masking, washing your hands, keeping your hands away from your face, because you don't want to be one of those who's the last one to get it in the pandemic. I think the thing I'd like to talk about, Cobb, is I'm surprised how many people, healthy, intelligent, you know, people argue with me about getting a vaccine. And... Yes, I know your arm's going to be sore. You may have a lot of body aches with the second vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. And the vaccine was, um, you know, rushed through, et cetera, et cetera. I got it as soon as I could. I've had my two shots. But I don't think people have a good idea of just how ravaging this infection is as a multi-organ 
problem. It isn't that your lungs get inflamed for a couple of days and you might die. Um, could you discuss the lung, heart, brain aspects of this disease that, Charlie, that you've seen that I think might, you know, pe- might make people think that, oh, this vaccine um, is a whole lot better idea than the chance that I might have my whole body ravaged by this virus? Yeah, so, you know, there's there's three vaccines that are licensed in the um, United States, and all three of them are good vaccines. You know, when you think about what's the benefit of a vaccine, what you're trying to do is you're trying to decrease the morbidity and mortality from the disease. And all three of them do that. You know, they have different statistics for them, but it's really not important. Um, what's important is do all three of them prevent you from getting critically ill and dying of the disease? And the answer is yes. So some of them have more side effects than others. Um, and it's not really clear which one is going to be the one that would be best for any one individual. But at this point in the pandemic, I would say if you have a chance to get any one of them, uh, get it. And, you know, I know there are many people who are thinking that, oh, I'm not going to get the vaccine. I'm going to rely on the herd immunity of, uh, of everyone else. You know, if we all did that, um, we would never get to the point of herd immunity. And it's, it's critical that um, we, we do get there. And I think we will get there. Um, and some of the fears of the vaccines and the side effects of the vaccines are that, you know, you're going to be sick for a day or two. And I, I tell you, when you see people who have been hospitalized and just suffering in the ICU on a vent for weeks and weeks, um, you would you would take that little ache in your arm or the chills and fever for a day anytime. Okay, and we have a caller that's been patiently waiting with a question. Welcome to Mind Body Health. You're live on the radio. Hi there, thanks guys. So question. Um I've heard that there is a really interesting um like biotechnology that's being utilized in one of the uh, vaccines. And I'm just wondering, so when it attaches, it actually, how does, I've heard a few different things, and I'm just interested in what both of you gentlemen think. Okay, thanks for the question. Marv, do you want to get that, or do you want me to get that? No, I think, uh, I didn't, you know, I'm a little confused by the question. You go ahead. So, first off, I'm going to do a disclaimer. I'm not an expert on... uh, on the biotechnology of the vaccines, but the new vaccine, both the Moderna and the um, and the Pfizer vaccine are mRNA vaccines, which is new technology that hasn't been done before. And um, the technology is reproducible so that uh, once you know what the genome of the virus is, you can make a new vaccine. So for example, now that we're being these new variants out from various areas of the world, including our own variants from California. They can, they can take the genetic material from those variants and make a new vaccine uh, quite easily um, because it's, it's essentially like they have the recipe and they just need to plug in the new components to it. Uh, that's my understanding of it. And, um, and the mRNA vaccine has, has worked 
far better than the prior vaccines that we used. I mean, when you talk about a vaccine that has 90 plus percent efficacy, it's, it's unheard of. It's, it's remarkable. Okay, and we have one more caller. Welcome to Mind Body Hello. Health. Go ahead with your question. Um, yeah, I was wondering about how many of the people that have already been vaccinated and supposedly are immune or whatever, how many of them are still getting sick or catching the virus? You know, it's is it yeah. is it completely yeah. keep you from getting the virus, or is this just a placebo right. type idea? It's it's 95% effective. Hawaii just had three people return to Hawaii from the mainland who received the virus. But statistically speaking, those three people are in that 5%. So there's 5% of people that get the vaccine that aren't immune. So it's still possible. But, But they have not had anybody who got the vaccine who got sick who required hospitalization right right so, yeah. right so again the goal is not so much to prevent infection although it's certainly nice if you can but the goal is to prevent morbidity and mortality and uh it's it's been 100 percent effective in that regard i wonder if you can speak to um being contagious dr evans and maybe about vaccines in general uh you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into my very basic understanding of how vaccines work because we'll get a vaccine that'll boost our immune system so that the immune system is ready when that viral load gets into our body and accesses it. At what point do we, you know, have the disease, whether or not we're getting sick or, you know, severely ill and are people still contagious depending on what that illness is at any point. And, and, you know, I'm addressing disease in general in vaccines. So I think the answer is not really known yet. That's still being studied. It's clear that you can get the vaccine and still get the infection. Uh, That's been documented. Um, You can also, if you get the infection, potentially you could be infectious. Um, but what most people are promoting is that those that have been vaccinated and do get the infection have a very low viral load, uh, and therefore are less likely to pass it on to others. But that, that truly is not known. Um, all those studies are taking place and probably by the summer, we'll have, uh, some controlled studies and some data on it. And, you know, the, the, um, to, to really answer your question, the answer is we need to wait and follow the science. Well, in that regard, with vaccines in general, I wonder if you could expand more on your work uh, with vaccination programs when you were in Kenya. You mentioned you were a big part of uh, administering polio, tetanus, measles vaccinations and the impact it had there. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell us about your experience with that more? Sure. So um, when I first got there, uh, I, w- I was young um, and didn't have nearly the clinical experience I have now, but I had 
a ton of time because there's nothing to do other than read books, right? When you weren't working, we would just read. And I kept on seeing these little kids dying of this strange illness that I couldn't tell what it was. Well, it turned out it was neonatal tetanus. And um, we went on a, a huge campaign to vaccinate all the pregnant moms against tetanus. And we, you know, that, that was like a top priority. Within six months, we never saw neonatal tetanus again. And wow. strictly by the vaccines. Uh, another, an, another example, uh, measles. Uh, we heard that there was a measles epidemic that was coming, and we vaccinated all the clinic, all the people that came to the clinic and, and all the outlying regions that we went routinely, and we vaccinated there. There was a village that was right next to the Tanzania border that we didn't have a clinic in. And that, in that um, village, there were 35 children that died of measles when the uh, epidemic came through. Nobody died in the village where we vaccinated. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's remarkable how successful the vaccine campaigns have been in eliminating these childhood diseases. And, um, Similarly, you know, the vaccine works for coronavirus. What what was your experience uh, with vaccinations out there in terms of education and trust and communication with people as you were administering them? So it it took, um, when we were first there, it, it was foreign to them, but people realized that uh, again, this gets back to the whole idea of community trust. People realized that we were there promoting a uh, cause for the betterment of their health, and they had trust in us. And uh, when we promoted the vaccines, um, they were willing to go along with that. And they saw uh, that we wiped out diseases. We wiped out polio. Um, I probably saw four or five cases of acute polio in my two years there but i didn't see any in the last six months um, because we hadn't vaccinated so extensively at our vaccination clinics we would we would usually see anywhere from 150 to 250 people in a day Mm -hmm. and just go to a different we would go to a different village each day um and uh you know each village we would go to once a month so you know, usually our vaccination days were Tuesdays and Thursdays, and those days we, we wouldn't be in the clinic. So um, the people accepted it because they had trust that we were, uh, had their best interest in mind. And this is the same sort of thing that Charlie and I did when we were teenagers. I was in Guatemala three summers, Honduras one summer, Paraguay one summer, between 68 and 72. And the people that, that, that had lived through polio epidemics, meningitis, tetanus, diphtheria, um, you know, smallpox, um, they didn't know how bad things were. And so they were willing to take the leap of faith to get the vaccine. And, um, um, you know, the villages that didn't get vaccinated, it made a big difference. You know, people could see that. And I think that we've gone along in the United States for so many decades. I was a little child 
oh, not a little child, but I was in junior high or something like that when I was given a sugar cube for polio. You know, but I can't think of anything since then that has threatened or disturbed, you know. I mean, TB is a problem, but that's mostly with people that come back from other countries. But I'm trying, you know, even uh, H-flu, all the little kids get H-flu, H-influenza shots. You don't see the meningitis with that anymore. Yeah. Uh, I think we're we're residents, we would see H-flu meningitis and H-flu epiglottitis routinely. And uh, I haven't seen a case of that in probably 20 years. Got it. Well, if you just tuned in, this is KZYX. This is the Mind Body Health Show. Uh, my name is Cobb. I'm engineering in the studio. Uh, we are taking questions, so the number to call in is 707-895-2448 if you have a question. Uh, right now, our guest is Dr. Charlie Evans, an ER doctor in Petaluma and Healdsburg, and we're talking in general about his experiences abroad as a doctor and also kind of relating that to vaccinations here locally. And, of course, our host is Dr. Marvin Trotter. And we do have a caller who's been patiently waiting. Uh, Welcome, caller. Go ahead with your question. My question has to do with the introduction of technology to the tribe. Was it easier, and communication, was it easier to communicate through word of mouth or through the cell phone, um, introduction of cell phones and technology? Is this, is it more, was it easier for you to talk face-to-face like we're doing now? Um, or did, what was uh, the introduction of technology? How did that work towards or away from uh, your goals, what you were trying to do? And... My second question would be time. When you introduce a time schedule to a tribal, how did that affect? Uh, were the kids getting up earlier, or was it uh, the same time schedule? Thank you. Thanks. Well, I'll take the, the second question first. So the time, you know, they very much so run by the sun. So... Um, people would get up just before sunrise, people would go to bed just after sunset, unless you were a fisherman and you would fish all night long on the lake. Um, but it didn't affect time much because they, they didn't have power. Um, and, you know, using your gas lantern was, um, you would use that for emergencies, not routinely. So the time didn't change much. In in terms of what did the introduction of technology do and and was that a positive thing? So I've got to say that the biggest influence that technology has had is on education and access to current material. Um, The little dirt uh, floored wooden desk schoolhouse that was there in 1988 had books from 1950. And even uh, then, you know, when it talked about the geography of the area, you know, they were talking about Rhodesia that was no longer a country. And so they're reading from books that were well outdated. And now, you know, they have access to uh, all these things over the Internet. And are there negatives from it? Of course there are. Um, has Has it worked on... Uh, eroding away their culture in in some respects, yes, and that people are able to see what others have and do, and they're able to get more knowledge. But 
has it improved the, the quality of their lives? I would have to say, you know, they had um, their health conditions were very Spartan and, and they had very tough um, lives in terms of, of what they had to do to survive. You know, when we were there, the, the um, life expectancy of an adult was uh, 50 years. And uh, we had some villages that had infant mortality of upwards of 50%. Um, and now that, that's no longer the case. I don't know the exact statistics on the infant mortality. But even on the HIV mortality, that has come way down. And that, that would not have been possible without Internet. I wonder if you can speak a little bit to um, cultural sensitivity, uh, the kind of training you received in that regard prior to uh, working abroad and how that affected your work, especially when it came to education and vaccinations. Or I wonder, too, how that related when you were addressing HIV in your work there. Well, so... You know, cultural sensitivity is something that um, respecting what a culture does and, and how they believe um, was something that I learned back in my days working in Amigos, where, you know, back in, in 1972, when I was out in the outback of Bolivia, um, working with Quechua Indians, I I didn't assume that I knew better i just assumed that i had something that i could offer them that was uh potentially helpful and it's very difficult when you don't have the language behind you um but when you do have the language behind you and you have some understanding of their culture it's much easier to communicate to them uh in a sincere way that you have something of help to them and one of the things that I was struck by in Kenya is that their approach to life was completely different than the Western values. And because they had assumed Western dress, you would assume after living there for a while that they think kind of like you, but they don't. They don't think at all like you because that's not the way they've been brought up. And, and you know, they have have their traditions and their thoughts around uh, everything from birth and death to marriage and uh, ownership of of uh, their cattle, um, you know, they they still buy their wives with cattle, and women are still property. You know, I, I found that abhorrent, but at the same time, that was their culture. Um, there were times when I felt like I needed to intervene when someone was being mistreated, and I was told quite sternly that that is not your place. Um, you can talk to me about it, but you cannot intervene. That is that man's property and very upsetting. But, um, you know, you have to respect the cultural norms and that kind of change comes uh, slowly. I will say that a lot of that change has happened in that the cooperatives in the village where we work um, are almost entirely run by women and women who have received education and um, some of them with advanced degrees uh, from uh, University of Nairobi. So uh, it's really fun to see how, how just planting that little seed back 
30 years ago has blossomed into such a, a wonderful growing community. Okay, we've got a couple callers. Uh, again, the number to call here is 707-895-2448. We have less than 10 minutes to go. If you have a question, uh, go ahead with your question, caller. So am I on the air? You're on the air, yeah. Go ahead with your question. Yes, oh, thank you. This is a very interesting conversation about Kenya, and I have a little bit of the experience there myself. I had a good friend from Kenya, helped him start an orphanage, and then I spent uh, close to three weeks there in, in Kenya. And the one thing I wanted to point out is that the Kenyans are, are poor compared to us, and they eat a plant-based diet. The, the staple in their diet is, ironically, a New World crop. It's a, a, white, a white polenta corn, and they eat it with collard greens all the time. And my wife, who teaches nutrition, we, she has a guest. Uh, she's a, a dietitian from the Willits Hospital. And she made a comment a while back. She said that if you eat a plant-based diet, your body will produce twice as many white blood cells. And, of course, this is key to the immune system. And I just wondered if the doctor could elaborate on that a little bit more and comment on it. Thank you very much. Thanks. So you're absolutely right that they are almost entirely plant-based living around the lake we um, had access to fish but ironically um, most of the people who were fishermen would uh, sell the fish because that was their livelihood and they would still rely mostly on plants um, you know I'm not aware of the uh, effect of plant-based diet on white blood cell counts that's that's interesting uh, I'd be interested to learn more about that it's certainly clear that uh, eating a plant-based diet um, is kind of where we came from uh, if you think about us on an evolutionary scale uh, you know meat was not a daily uh, uh, source um, and so that's the way we evolved. It makes sense that that would be a good thing for us. Um, I think in, in, in Kenya, people were healthy based on their, um, their diets and their regular exercise. You, know, you just don't see the diseases that we see in this country with uh, advanced cardiac disease and diabetes and hypertension. They just didn't exist. And um, I think so much of that was nutrition and exercise-based. Okay. And we have another caller. Go ahead with your question. Oh, I, uh, I was just responding to the person who was curious about the technology of the uh, vaccine. Uh, there's, um, if they wanted to search for uh, something called the reverse engineering uh, Pfizer vaccine, and Pfizer is with a PF, not a PH. Uh, it's very fascinating. They've, it's fantastically clever. They've they've uh, basically uh, uh, the vaccine is a thing that delivers a little blueprint to this human cell that causes it to make a protein that's similar to but not exactly the same as the spike protein on the uh, on the virus. It has to be different because it would fold up. It would crumple up in the wrong shape if they didn't modify it. So there's, do, it's, do you uh, have a question it's for a guest? Um, the other thing is that people, when they're looking at the, when they're worried about vaccines, it's, you know, there's a certain risk that a 
stone is going to fall from the sky, a meteorite, and kill you. But that is very, very small. The, the thing in life, something... Okay, so I'm dropping that caller to move on with one more caller for a question. Uh, welcome to Mind Body Health. Go ahead with your question. Oh, lost them. Welcome to Mind Body Health. Go ahead with your question. We have just a couple minutes. Hi. Uh, I heard earlier you talking about HIV disease as opposed to AIDS. And over the years, and I haven't heard it in many years, people get laughed out of, of conversations because they, they differentiate between the two, that HIV isn't necessary to have AIDS and you can have uh, HIV and not AIDS, and I wonder if the doctor from Petaluma has uh, anything to say about that, because I noticed he did say HIV disease as opposed to AIDS several times. Okay, thanks. Can you clarify sure. that, doctor? Sure. So AIDS is a subgroup of HIV uh, patients, so you can be infected with HIV disease and not have AIDS. Um, the diagnosis of AIDS really comes when your T-cell count is at a specific level and you're more prone to opportunistic infections. And fortunately, in this country now, uh, HIV disease has really become more of a chronic disease and doesn't progress to AIDS because of the retroviral treatment that we give people to prevent them from dropping their T-cells so low. So... Um, HIV disease is the whole spectrum from infection all the way through AIDS, AIDS being the end if you don't treat it. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Um, you know, thanks for being here, Dr. Charlie Evans. This has been a, a fun conversation for me. And I wonder if, uh, before we go, we have just a few minutes left, if you could give out any pertinent information for people interested to find out more about the clinic uh, where you're working and fundraising for in Kenya? Yes, yeah, so uh, thank you. Uh, you can go to lalamba.org, L-A-L-M-B-A dot O-R-G, and uh, you'll find information about Lalamba, which has been around, as they say, since I believe the 60s. Um, and you'll read about the clinic and... Uh, in Kenya, but also about the clinic in Ethiopia and the work that's going on to uh, revitalize and improve the children's home for the children in Ethiopia, at Chiri, Ethiopia. Okay, and uh, are you aware of any uh, information links you'd like to share with our listeners regarding vaccinations here locally as far as education goes that that you're fond of? So I, I think the county website is the best place to go for that. Um, Marvin, do you have other links that you're familiar yeah, with? I think they should go to Evidence Health, Yukai Valley. They have links. You know, the it, it, it pleases me that the gym that the community built uh, is now vaccinating 1,500 to 2,500 people a day on Wednesdays. Um, having multiple stations in our 10,000 square foot gymnasium that's being used for the community. So the, the hospital's doing a job using the gym, vaccinating people. Got it. Yeah. Well, that's bringing us up on the end of the hour. Thanks for being here, Dr. Charlie Evans, ER doc in Petaluma and Healdsburg.
Okay. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Marv. Thank you, Kyle. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.